Appendix four, section four of On War, volumes two and three by Karl von Clausewitz, translated by J. J. Graham. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Recording by Timothy Ferguson. Polarity of the simultaneous and successive use of troops. Three hundred and twenty-one. As the simultaneous and successive use of troops are opposed to one another, and each has its advantages, they may be regarded as two poles, each of which attracts the resolution to itself, and, by that means, fixes it at a point where they are in a state of equilibrium, provided that this resolution is founded on a right estimate of the opposing forces. 322. Now, we require to know the laws of this polarity, that is, the advantages and conditions of these two applications of force, and thereby also their relations with one another. 323. The simultaneous employment of forces may be intensified, capital A, with equal fronts both A, in fire combat, B, in close combat, capital B, with a greater front, that is, enveloping. 324. Only those forces which are brought into efficient activity at the same time can be regarded as applied simultaneously. When the fronts are equal, such application is therefore limited by the possibility of acting effectively. For instance, in fire combat, three ranks might perhaps fire at the same time, but six cannot. 325. We have shown in number 89 that two lines of fire of unequal strength as regards numbers may be a match for each other, and that a diminution of numbers on one side, if it does not exceed certain limits, has only the result of reducing the mutual effect. 326. But the more the destructive effect of the fire combat is diminished, the more time is required to produce the necessary effect. Therefore, that side which desires chiefly to gain time, commonly the defensive side, is interested in modifying as much as possible the total destructive effect of the fire, that is, the sum of the mutual fire. 327. Further, this must also be an object with the side which is much the weaker in point of numbers, because when the losses are equal, his are always, relatively, greatest. 328. When the conditions are reversed, the interests will be also. 329. When no special interest for hastening the action predominates, it will be in the interest of both sides to do with as few troops as possible, that is, as already said, number 89b, only to employ so many that the enemy will not be induced to come to close quarters at once, owing to the smallness of our numbers. 330. In this manner, therefore, the simultaneous employment of forces in fire combat is limited by the want of any advantage, and both sides have to fall back upon the successive use of the spare forces. 331. In close combat, the superiority in numbers is, above all things, decisive, and the simultaneous employment of troops is, on that account, so much to be preferred to the successive, that the latter, in theory, is almost completely excluded, and only becomes possible through accessory circumstances. 332. Close combat is in fact a decision, and one which lasts hardly any time. This excludes the successive use of forces. 333. But we have already said that the crisis of the close combat affords favourable scope for the successive use of forces. 334. Further, the decisions in partial close combats, belonging to a greater whole, are no absolute decisions. 
Therefore, the application of our force to the further combats which are possible must also be taken into consideration. 335. This leads then also to not using at one time more troops in close combat than appear to be just necessary to make certain of the result. 336. As regards this point, there is no other general rule except that circumstances which obstruct execution, such as a very courageous enemy, difficult ground, etc., occasion a necessity for a greater number of troops. 337. But for the general theory, it is of consequence to observe that the employment of more troops than is necessary in close combat is never so disadvantageous as in fire combat, because in the first, the troops only become unserviceable at the time of the crisis, not for a continuance. 338. The simultaneous employment of forces in the close combat is therefore subject to this rule, that it must in all cases be sufficient to produce the result, and that the successive use can in no way make up for insufficiency, for the results cannot be added together as in the fire combat. And further, that when once the point of sufficiency is reached, any greater simultaneous application of force becomes a waste of power. 339. Now that we have considered the application of large bodies of troops in fire and close combat by increasing the depth of the same, we come to that which is possible by extending the front, that is, in the enveloping form. 340. There are two ways in which we may conceive a greater number of combatants brought simultaneously into action through a greater width of front, viz. 1. By extending our front so as to cause the enemy to extend his also. This does not give us any superiority over the enemy, but it has the effect of bringing more forces into play on both sides. 2. By outflanking the enemy's front. 341. To bring more forces into action on both sides can in very few cases be of any advantage to one of the two sides. It is also uncertain whether the enemy will respond to this further extension of front. 342. If he does not respond, then a part of our front, that is, our forces, will be either unemployed, or we must apply the overlapping part of our front to turn the enemy. 343. It is then only the apprehension of this turning which moves the enemy to extend as far as we have done. 344. If, however, the enemy is to be turned, it is plainly better to make arrangements for that purpose from the first, and therefore we should consider an extension of front only from that point of view. 345. Now, in the employment of troops, the enveloping form has this particular property, that it not only increases the number of troops simultaneously engaged on the two sides, but it also allows us, the party using it, to bring more of them into activity than the enemy can. 346. If, for instance, a battalion with a front 180 paces in length is surrounded and has to show front on four sides, and if the enemy is at a distance of musketry range, 150 yards, from it, then there would be room for eight battalions to act with effect against that single battalion. 347. The enveloping form, therefore, comes in here on account of this peculiarity but we must at the same time bring under consideration its other specialities also, that is, its advantages and disadvantages. 348. A second advantage of the enveloping form is the increased effect resulting from the concentration of fire. 349. A third advantage is its effect in the interception of the enemy's retreat. 350. These three advantages of enveloping diminish according as the forces, or rather their fronts, become greater, and they increase the smaller the fronts are. 351. For as regards the first, number 345, 
the range of arms remains the same, whether the masses of troops be great or small, it being understood that they consist of the same arms of the service. The actual difference, therefore, between the enveloping line and the line enveloped is a quantity which always remains the same, and consequently its relative value is always diminishing in proportion as the front is extended. 352. To surround a battalion at 150 yards, eight battalions are required number 346, but 10 battalions, on the other hand, might be surrounded by only 20 battalions. 353. The enveloping form, however, is seldom, if ever, carried out completely, that is to say, to the complete circle, rarely more than partially, and usually within 180 degrees. Now, if we imagine to ourselves a body of the size of a considerable army, we see plainly how little will remain of the first of the above advantages under such circumstances. 354. It is just the same with the second advantage, as may be seen at a glance. 355. The third advantage also, of course, notably diminishes by the greater extension of the front, although here some other relations also come into consideration. 366. But the enveloping form has also a peculiar disadvantage, which is that the troops being by that form spread out over a greater space, their efficient action is diminished in two respects. 357. For instance, the time which is required to go over a certain space cannot at the same time be utilised for fighting. Now, all movements which do not lead perpendicularly on the enemy's line have to be made over a greater space by the enveloping party than by the party enveloped, because the latter moves more or less on the radii of the smaller circle, the former on the circumference of the greater, which makes an important difference. 358. This gives the side enveloped the advantage of a greater facility in the use of his forces at different points. 359. But the unity of the whole is also lessened by the greater space covered, because intelligence and orders must pass over greater distances. 360. Both these disadvantages of enveloping increase with the increase in the width of the front. When there are only a few battalions, they are insignificant. With large armies, on the other hand, they become important for... 361. The difference between the radius and the circumference is constant, therefore the absolute difference becomes always greater, the greater the front becomes, and it is with absolute differences we are now concerned. 362. Besides, with quite small bodies of troops, few or no flank movements occur, whilst they become more frequent as the size of the masses increases. 363. Lastly, as regards interchange of communications, there is no difference as long as the whole space is only such as can be overlooked. 364. Therefore, if the advantages of the enveloping form are very great and the disadvantages are very small when the fronts are short, if the advantages diminish and the disadvantages increase with the extension of front, it follows that there must be a point where there is an equilibrium. 365. Beyond that point, therefore, the extension of front can no longer offer any advantages over the successive use of troops, but on the contrary, disadvantages arise. 366. The equilibrium between the advantages of the successive use of forces and those of a greater extent of front, number 341, must therefore be on this side of that point. 367. In order to find out this point of equilibrium, we must bring the advantages of the enveloping form more distinctly into view. The simplest way to do so is as follows. 368. A certain front is necessary in order to exempt ourselves from the effect of the first two disadvantages of being surrounded. 369. 
as respects the convergent double effect of fire there is a length of front where that completely ceases namely if the distance between the portions of the line bent back in case we are surrounded by the enemy exceeds that of the range of firearms three hundred and seventy but in rear of every position a space out of reach of fire is required for the reserves for those who command etc whose place is in the rear of the front if these were exposed to fire from three sides then they could no longer fulfil the objects for which they are intended. 371. As these details of themselves form considerable masses in large armies, and consequently require more room, therefore the greater the whole, the greater must be the space out of the reach of fire in the rear of the front. Accordingly, on this ground, the front must increase as the masses increase. 372. But the space out of fire behind a considerable mass of troops must be greater not only because the reserves, etc., occupy more space, but besides that also in order to afford greater security, for in the first place the effect of stray shots would be more serious amongst large masses of troops and military trains than amongst a few battalions. Secondly, the combats of large masses last much longer, and through that the losses are much greater amongst the troops behind the front who are not actually engaged in the combat. 373. If, therefore, a certain length is fixed for the necessary extent of front, then it must increase with the size of the masses. 374. The other advantage of the enveloping form, the superiority in the number acting simultaneously, leads to no determinate quality for the front of a line. We must, therefore, confine ourselves to saying that it diminishes with the extension of front. 375. Further, we must point out that the simultaneous action of superior numbers here spoken of chiefly relates to musketry fire, for as long as artillery alone is in action, space will never be wanting, even for the enveloped on his smaller curve, to plant as many pieces as the enemy can on the greater curve, because there is never enough artillery with an army to cover the whole front of a continuous line. 376. It cannot be objected that the enemy has still always an advantage in the greater space, because his guns need not stand so close, and therefore are less liable to be struck. For batteries cannot be thus evenly distributed by single guns at equal intervals over a great space. 377. In a combat of artillery alone, or in one in which the artillery plays the principal part, the greater extent of the enveloping front gives an advantage, and a great one too, through the great range of artillery, because that makes a great difference in the extent of the two fronts. This case occurs, for example, with single redoubts. But with armies in which the other arms of the service take the most prominent part, and artillery only a secondary part, there is not this advantage, because, as already said, there is never any want of space, even for the side enveloped. 378. It is therefore principally in infantry combats that the advantage which the greater front affords of bringing greater numbers into action, simultaneously, must show itself. The difference of the two fronts in such a case amounts to three times the range of the musket, if the envelopment reaches an angle of 180 degrees. That is about 600 paces. Before a front of 600 paces in length, the enveloping line will then be double, which will be sensibly felt, but before a front of 3,000 paces, the additional length would only be one-fifth, which is no advantage of any importance. 379. We may, therefore, say respecting this point that the length of a front is sufficient as soon as the difference resulting from the range of a musket shot ceases to give the enveloping line any very marked superiority. 380. From what has just been said of the two advantages of enveloping, it follows that small masses have a difficulty in obtaining the requisite development of front. This is so true that we know for a fact 
that they are in most cases obliged to give up their regular order of formation and to extend much more it rarely happens that a single battalion if left to depend on itself will engage in a combat without extending its front beyond the ordinary length one hundred and fifty and two hundred paces instead of keeping to that formation it will divide into companies with intervals between them that again will extend into skirmishes and after a part has been placed in reserve it will take up with the rest altogether twice three or four times as much room as it should regularly three hundred eighty one but the greater the masses the easier it is to attain the necessary extension of front as the front increases with the masses number three hundred seventy three although not in the same proportion three hundred eighty two great masses have therefore no necessity to depart from their order of formation on the contrary they are able to place troops in rear three hundred eighty three the consequence of this is that for large masses a kind of standing formation has been introduced in which portions of the force are drawn up in rear such is the ordinary order of battle in two lines usually there is a third one behind consisting of cavalry and besides that also a reserve of one-eighth to one-sixth etc three hundred eighty four with very large masses armies of a hundred thousand to a hundred and fifty thousand or two hundred thousand we see the reserve always get greater one quarter to a third a proof that armies have a continual tendency to increase further beyond what is required for the extent of front three hundred eighty five we only introduce this now to show more plainly the truth of our demonstration by a glance at facts three hundred eighty six such then is the bearing of the first two advantages of enveloping it is different with the third three hundred eighty seven the first two influence the certainty of the result by intensifying our forces the third does that also but only with very short fronts three hundred eighty eight it acts particularly on the courage of those engaged in the front of the enemy's line by creating a fear of losing their line of retreat an idea which has always a great influence on soldiers three hundred eighty nine this is however only the case when the danger of being cut off is so imminent and evident that the impression overpowers all restraints of discipline and of authority and carries away the soldier involuntarily three hundred ninety at greater distances and if the soldier is only led to a sense of danger indirectly by the sound of artillery and musketry in his rear uneasy feelings may arise within him but unless his spirit is already very bad these will not prevent his obeying the orders of his superiors three hundred ninety one in this case therefore the advantage in cutting off the enemy's retreat which appertains to the enveloping side cannot be regarded as one which makes success more secure that is more probable but only as one which increases the extent of a success already commenced three hundred ninety two in this respect also the third advantage of enveloping is subject to the counter principle that it is greatest with a short front and decreases with the extension of front as is evident three hundred ninety three but this does not set aside the principle that greater masses should have a greater extent of front than small ones because as a retreat is never made in the whole width of a position but by certain roads so it follows of itself that great masses require more time for a retreat than small ones this longer time therefore imposes the necessity of a larger front that the enemy who envelops this front may not so speedily gain the points through which the line of retreat passes three hundred ninety four if in accordance with number three hundred ninety one the third advantage of enveloping in the majority of cases that is when the fronts are not too short only influences the extent but not the certainty of success then it follows that it will have a very different value according to the relations and views of the combatants three hundred ninety five when the probability of result is otherwise small the first consideration must be to increase the probability 
In such a case, therefore, an advantage which relates principally to the extent of the result cannot be of much consequence. 396. But if this advantage is quite opposed, number 365, to the probability of success, in such case it becomes a positive disadvantage. 397. In such a case, endeavour must be made, through the advantage of the successive use of forces, to counterbalance those of the greater extent of front. 398. We see, therefore, that the point of indifference or equilibrium between the two poles of the simultaneous and successive application of our forces, of extension of front and depth of position, is differently situated, not only according as the masses are large or small, but also according to the relations and intentions of the respective parties. 399. The weaker and the more prudent will give the preference to the successive use, the stronger and the bold, to the simultaneous employment of forces. 400. It is natural that the assailant should be the stronger or the bolder, whether from the character of the commander or from necessity. 401. The enclosing form of combat, or that form which implies the simultaneous use of forces on both sides in the highest degree, is therefore natural to the assailant. 402. The enclosed, that is, one limited to the successive application of forces, and which on that account is in danger of being surrounded, is therefore the natural form of the defensive. 403. In the first, there is the tendency to a quick solution, in the latter to gain time, and these tendencies are in harmony with the object of each form of combat. 404. But in the nature of the defensive, there lies still another motive which inclines it to the deeper order of battle. 405. One of the most considerable advantages is the assistance of the country and ground, and local defence of the same constitutes an important element of this advantage. 406. Now, one would think this should lead to the front being made as wide as possible in order to make the most of this advantage, a one-sided view which may be regarded as the chief cause of commanders having been so often led to occupy extensive positions. 407. But hitherto we have always supposed the extension of front as either causing the enemy to extend in like manner, or as leading to outflanking, that is, an envelopment of the enemy's front. 408. As long as we imagine both sides equally active, therefore, apart from the point of view of offensive and defensive, the application of a more extended front to envelop the enemy presents no difficulty. 409. But as soon as we combine more or less local defence with the combat in front, as is done in the defensive, then that application of the overlapping portions of the front ceases. It is either impossible or very difficult to combine local defence without flanking. 410. In order rightly to appreciate this difficulty, we must always bear in mind the form which the case assumes in reality when our view of the enemy's measures is intercepted by the natural means of cover which the ground affords, and therefore troops employed to defend any particular locality may be easily deceived and held in inactivity. 411. From this it follows that in the defensive it is to be considered a decided disadvantage to occupy a greater front than that which the enemy necessarily requires for the deployment of his forces. 412. The necessary extent of front for the offensive we shall examine hereafter. Here we have only to observe that if the offensive takes up too narrow a front, the defensive does not punish him for it, through having made his own front wide at first, but by an offensive enveloping counter-movement. 
413. It is therefore certain that the defender, in order that he may not in any case incur the disadvantage of too wide a front, will always take up the narrowest which circumstances will permit, for by that means he can place more troops in reserve. At the same time, these reserves are never likely to be left inactive, like portions of a too extended front. 414. As long as the defender is satisfied with the narrowest front and seeks to preserve the greatest depth, that is to say, as long as he follows the natural tendency of his form of combat, in the same degree, there will be an opposite tendency on the part of the assailant. He will make the extent of his front as great as possible, or, in other words, envelop his enemy as far as possible. 415. But this is a tendency and no law. For we have seen that the advantages of this envelopment diminish with the lengths of the fronts, and therefore at certain points no longer counterbalance the advantage of the successive application of force. To this law the assailant is subject as well as the defender. 416. Now here we have to consider extension of front of two kinds, that which the defender fixes by the position which he takes up, and that which the assailant is obliged to adopt with a view to outflanking his enemy. 417. If the extension in the first case is so great that all the advantages of outflanking vanish or become ineffective, then the movement must be given up. The assailant must then seek to gain an advantage in another way, as we shall presently see. 418. But if the defender's front is as small as can possibly be, if the assailant at the same time has a right to look for advantages by outflanking and enveloping, still again the limits of this envelopment must be fixed. 419. This limit is determined by the disadvantages inherent to any enveloping movement which is carried too far. Numbers 356 and 365. 420. These disadvantages arise when the envelopment is attempted against a front exceeding the length which would justify the movement, but they are evidently much greater if the fault consists in too wide of an envelopment of a short line. 421. When the assailant has these disadvantages against him, then the advantages of the enemy in the successive employment of force through his short line must tell with more weight. 422. Now it certainly appears that the defender who adopts the narrow front and deep order of battle does not thereby retain all the advantages of the successive use of forces on his side, for if the assailant adopts a front as small, and therefore does not outflank his enemy, then it is possible for both equally to resort to the successive use of their forces. But if the assailant envelops his opponent, then the latter must oppose a front in every direction in which he is threatened, and therefore fight with the same extent of front except the trifling difference between the extent of concentric circles which is not worth noticing with respect to this there are four points which claim our attention 423 in the first place let the assailant contract his front as much as he pleases there is always an advantage for the defender in the combat changing from the form of one in extended order and which will be quickly decided into one which is concentrated and prolonged for the promulgation of the combat is in favour of the defensive 424. Secondly, the defender, even if enveloped by his adversary, is not always obliged to oppose a parallel front to each of the divisions surrounding him. He may attack them in flank or rear, for which the geometrical relations are just as those which afford the best opportunity, but this is at once a successive use of forces, for in that it is not at all a necessary condition that the troops employed later should be employed exactly as the first used, or that the last brought forward should take up the ground occupied by the first, as we shall see presently more plainly. Without placing troops in reserve, it would not be possible to envelop the enveloping force in this manner. 425. Thirdly, by the short front, with strong reserves in rear, there is a possibility of the enemy carrying his enveloping movement too far. 
number 420, of which advantage may then be taken just by means of the forces placed in rear in reserve. 426. Fourthly, in the last place, there is an advantage to the defender in being secured by this means against the opposite error of a waste of force, through portions of the front not being attacked. 427. These are the advantages of a deep order of battle, that is, of the successive employment of forces. They not only check over extension on the part of the defender, but also stop the assailant from overstepping certain limits in enveloping without, however, stopping the tendency to extend within these limits. 428. But this tendency will be weakened or completely done away with if the defender has extended himself too far. 429. Under these circumstances, certainly the defender, being deficient in masses in reserve, cannot punish the assailant for his too great extension in his attempt to envelop, but the advantages of the envelopment are, as it is, too small in such a case. 430. The assailant will, therefore, now no longer seek the advantages of enveloping if his relations are not such that cutting off is a point of great importance to him. In this way, therefore, the tendency of enveloping is diminished. 431. But it will be entirely done away with if the defender has taken up a front of such extent that the assailant can leave a great part of it inactive, for that is to him a decided gain. 432. In such cases, the assailant ceases to look for advantages in extension and enveloping, and looks for them in the opposite direction, that is, in the concentration of his forces against some one point. It is easy to perceive that this signifies the same as a deep order of battle. 433. How far the assailant may carry the contraction of the front of his position depends on a. the size of the masses, b. the extent of the enemy's front, and c. his state of preparation to assume a counter-offensive. 434. With small forces, it is disadvantageous to leave any part of the enemy's front inactive, for, as the spaces are small, everything can be seen, and such parts can, on the instant, be applied to active purposes elsewhere. 435. From this follows of itself that also with larger masses and fronts, the front attacked must not be too small, because otherwise the disadvantage just noticed would arise, at least partially. 436. But in general it is natural that when the assailant has good reason to seek his advantage in a concentration of his forces, on account of the excessive extension of front or the passivity of the defender, he can go further in contracting the extent of his front than the defender, because the latter, through the too great extension of his front, is not prepared for an offensive counteraction against the enveloping movement. 437. The greater the front of the defender, the greater will be the number of parts which the assailant can leave unassailed. 438. The same will be the case the more the intention of local defensive is strictly pronounced. 439. And lastly, the greater the masses are generally. 440. The assailant will, therefore, find the most advantage in a concentration of his forces if all these favourable circumstances are combined, namely, large masses, too long a front, and a great deal of local defence on the part of the enemy. 441. This subject cannot be finished until we examine the relations of space. 442. We have already shown, number 291, the use of the successive employment of forces. We have only here to call the attention of our readers to the point that the motives for it relate not only to the renewal of the same combat with fresh troops, but also to every subsequent or ulterior employment of reserve troops. 443. In this subsequent use, there is supreme advantage, as will be seen in the sequel. 444. From the preceding exposition, 
we see that the point where the simultaneous and successive use of troops balance each other out is different according to the mass of troops in reserve according to the proportion of force according to situation and object according to boldness and prudence 445 that country and ground have likewise a great influence is of course understood and it only receives this bare mention because all application is here left out of sight 446 with such manifold connections and complex relations no absolute numbers can be fixed as normal quantities but there must still be some unit which serves as a fixed point for these complex changeable relations 447 now there are two such guides one on each side first a certain depth which allows the simultaneous action of all the forces may be looked upon as one guide to reduce this depth for the sake of increasing the extension of the front must therefore be regarded as a necessary evil this therefore determines the necessary depth the second guide is the security of the reserve of which we have already spoken this determines the necessary extension 448 the necessary depth just mentioned lies at the foundation of all standing formations we shall not be able to prove this until hereafter when we come to treat specially of the order of the three arms 449 but before we can bring our general considerations to a final conclusion in anticipation of the above result we must inquire into the determination of place as that has some influence upon it likewise end of appendix four section four recording by timothy ferguson gold coast australia